Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books in the Indian Ocean World, a podcast series on the New Books Network. This podcast is for people who want to sail the waters of the expansive Indian Ocean and learn about its past and present. Thank you for joining me today. I'm really excited to share this interview with you. I'm your host, Kelvin Eng from Yale University. With me is the co-host, Swami Sri Ghosh from Princeton University. For God or Empire, Said Fadl and the Indian Ocean World by Professor Wilson Chaco Jacket published by Stanford University Press in 2019, is a theoretically informed work of Indian Ocean history that raises a series of provocative questions about sovereignty and religion in the Indian Ocean. Sayyid Fadl, a descendant of the Prophet Muhammad, led a unique life, one that spent much of the 19th century and connected India, Arabia, and the Ottoman Empire. For God or Empire tells his story, part biography and part global history as his life and legacy afford a singular view on historical shifts of power and sovereignty, religion, and politics. Wilson Jacob recasts the genealogy of modern sovereignty through the encounter between Islam and empire states in the Indian Ocean world. Fuddle's travels in worlds seen and unseen made for a life that was both unsettled and unsettling. And through his life, at least two forms of sovereignty, God and empire, become apparent in intersecting global contexts of religion and modern state formation. While these changes are typically explained in terms of secularization of the state and the birth of rational modern man, the life and afterlives of Sayyid Fadl, which takes us from 18th and 19th century Indian Ocean worlds to 21st century cyberspace, offer a more open-ended global history of sovereignty and a more capacious conception. Of life. Over the course of our conversation, we will talk not just about Professor Wilson Jacobs' approach to teaching history, but also how he came to this project, what were some of the structural decisions he made when putting together the narrative which attempted to write the biography of Said Fadl. I will also ask what can South Asian history and Middle East history gain from Indian Ocean world studies. To learn about these issues and more, join us and stay tuned. I hope you enjoy the book. And I hope you enjoy this conversation as well. Today, I'm here to talk to Professor Wilson Jacob, the author of the captivating book, For God or Empire, Sayyid Fadl and the Indian Ocean World. By discussing this book, we will dive deep to learn about overlapping currents in and off the Indian Ocean between religious worlds and modern state formation. Wilson Jacob is Associate Professor of History at Concordia University in Montreal. His early training at Georgetown University and his doctoral work at NYU were in Arab and Middle Eastern studies, with a specialization in the cultural and gender history of Egypt. In addition to several articles, he has published a well-received monograph on masculinity titled Working Out Egypt, Affinity Masculinity and Subject Formation in Colonial Modernity which came out in 2011 with Duke University Press and was co-published by the American University in Cairo Press. Welcome, Wilson, to New Books in the Indian Ocean World, and thanks so much for taking the time to talk about your captivating book today. Thank you, Calvin. Thank you, Samyashree. It's a pleasure to be here with you. 
So just to begin, can you start us off by saying a few words about yourself? That is, where did you grow up, where you went to school, how you became interested in your field of study, and any influential mentors you have? Sure. Um, all of those things, obviously, also have something to do with this book. So I'll start from the beginning, if you'll allow me. Um, I was born in Kerala, in southwestern India, um, which is sort of the the beginning scene of um, For God or Empire. Um, and I lived there my first five years. Um, then our parents whisked us away to upstate New York um, as part of the great migration from Kerala of, um, of women, actually, in large part, female-led out-migration. My mother was a nurse, and um, we ended up growing up in the U.S. Uh, between upstate New York for a year and um, Texas and Oklahoma um, for um, many years. Um, so we finished high school in Oklahoma and um, did an undergraduate and master's degree uh, in the School of Foreign Service at Georgetown. Um, there had amazing teachers who um, introduced me to Arab history, to Islamic history, to um, the Middle East um, as a geopolitical formation. Um, Judith Tucker, the uh, renowned historian of um, social and gender history in the Middle East, was my mentor, my main mentor. But um, I also gained a lot at Georgetown from the late Hisham Sharabi, um, who was technically an Arab studies professor, but in his um, later years, almost exclusively taught a sequence of um, European intellectual history that start in the 19th century as one seminar in the 20th century and then readings in postmodern European thought. Um, so Sharabi was very, very crucial in um, helping me to see the importance of thinking seriously about European thought. Um, and along with Sharabi, Lalita Gopalan, um, a film studies professor, um, introduced me to the world of post-colonial theory and post-colonial studies. Um, so that's where I would say my foundation lies is, is um, those five years at Georgetown. Um, but in between, I had a wonderful opportunity to study in Egypt um, in that famous American junior year abroad um, type program. And Martina Riker, a social historian who had trained under Peter Gran, um, but also went her own um, way as a scholar that was heavily influenced by deconstruction and subaltern studies. Um, she was also very crucial in helping me to think history outside um, particular grand narratives and boxes that um, institutionalization um, of the discipline sort of you know, almost requires. Um, and then I went on to do a PhD at NYU where um, um, there were many mentors. It was a most um, 
open and amazing time to be there um, as the Middle East and Islamic Studies program was, I think, only in its or the joint history uh, Middle East Islamic Studies program was only in its second year. Um, and so there was a lot of um, excitement and um, um, it was a very dynamic place with Zachary Lockman, um, the um, you know, one of the leading historians of um, of Egypt and Palestine was my advisor there, um, and Michael Gilsonen, an anthropologist um, who studies Islam but has also um, veered towards Southeast Asia. As Indian Ocean studies in the last few years um, was an informal sort of advisor. Um, and along with them, Timothy Mitchell and Khaled Fahmi, Molly Nolan, Lisa Dugan, these were all um, exemplars of scholarly seriousness um, combined with intellectual generosity, which um, is sometimes hard to find in the academy together. Um, so these were, these were major um, these folks were major influences on me, and I imagine the development of my of my research interests has a lot to do with um, these brilliant people um, who simultaneously guided me when I needed it and left me free to roam. Um, yeah, I think. Yeah, thank you so much for that. And just speaking as a PhD student. It is so important to, you know, at those fortuitous moments, meet advisors who, who can provide you with the support you need, not just emotionally or logistically, but also intellectually. For sure. Um, and I'm really curious because since your first book is Working Out Egypt, Offending Masculinity and Subject Formation, can you tell us how you became interested in the wider Indian Ocean world? Sure. Um that in some ways has to do with the choice of PhD programs, which they should always, you know, tell you at your undergraduate level or your your master's level. Um, I mean, I think I was told, but nonetheless, NYU was very attractive in those days. Um, and my proposal for um, the PhD program was, in fact, an Indian Ocean world um, proposal where I was you know, interested in, and I wrote this from Syria, where um, I spent a year after doing my, finishing my master's at Georgetown. Um, and in Syria, for some reason, um, I was drawn to thinking about the Middle East um, as a bigger um, trans-regional phenomenon that um, you know, that included East Africa, included South Asia. Um, and so my proposal was initially to work on connections between um, Oman and, uh, and East Africa, which was, you know, in 1995 when there was, oh boy, I've just <laughs> really dated myself, um, when there was, you know, not a lot written um, along those lines. But when I got to NYU, um, it seemed that, um, and to the Middle East Islamic Studies program, that Egypt, which I had, you know, where I had studied as an undergraduate, and Judith Tucker, my um, MA and undergraduate mentor, was a specialist in Egypt, and she handed me off essentially to Zachary Lockman, who was also a specialist in Egypt. So there's a way in which Egypt, you know, is a is a magnet for. Uh, 
Middle East PhD students and um, and I absolutely adored Egypt. And so so Indian Ocean kind of went, fell by the wayside, um, which had something to do also with the challenges of doing Indian Ocean um, history at that particular time um, in terms of experts and the and the paucity of, of expertise around Indian Ocean um, history at the time, but also the the language skills, which you know already sort of um, you know, having worked on Arabic quite a bit by the time I got to NYU, because I did a year after Syria in Egypt um, before coming to NYU. And um, you know, the prospect of doing Gujarati or some, or some other or Swahili, other languages just seemed too much. And, um, and so the Indian Ocean was put on hold at the time, but I didn't know that when I wrote the dissertation um, that turned into this book, Working Out Egypt, that there were seeds of the Indian Ocean somehow planted in that book. Um, and it was a conceptual seed. And um, um, if you know that book, uh, it actually turns out being a book about sovereignty as well. Um, but the kind of sovereignty we're familiar with, right? Um, the, the, the sort of anti-colonial nationalist movements and their quest for um, a sovereign state, right? Um, and in independence um, from colonial rule. Um, and that book sort of thought through how though that movement in the case of Egypt had also global um, contexts for um, formulating ideal notions of, of a national Egyptian man, um, masculinity, and so on. Um, but at the end of that book, there is a chapter um, that is a kind of almost response to myself for having um, locked myself within state sovereignty. Um, by writing um, inevitably a history of a nation state, um, you're locked into a particular conception of sovereignty. And so that last chapter deals with the figure of the fitua, which, um, or in an Egyptian colloquial register, fitua. Um, and this figure has both a kind of long classical um conceptual elaboration in 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 islamic history going back to to medieval times um as an ideal um model concept of masculinity that's tied to um virtues like compassion charity generosity um and so on but also um bodily strength and um the ability to protect um and I noticed that this figure kept appearing in my sources, but as this, um, these sources that were written by the, the main subject of that book, the bourgeois, right, elite, nationalist elite, um, the subject would appear as the other, um, would be uh, pathologized in these bourgeois accounts um, as the figure of disruption, a figure um, that threatened the new modern social order based on law and um, a particular kind of national politics um, that these effendies, these, these um, middle-class bourgeois claimants to the state, right, um, over and against colonial rulers, as well as, um, as old elites and the monarchy, 
Um, so the fatua was a strange counterpoint um, that threatened this new claim. And I was fascinated by, you know, um, that figure as more than a counterpoint. But in the book, I couldn't do that. Um, and so it nagged um, on me after publishing the book that I also let the fatua be essentially a victim of, of nationalism, of, um, of state sovereignty in the way that it sort of, you know, that this uh, figure as a social actor embedded in particular communities um, does become, but the idea remains, right? Um, and that was interesting to me that if you push Egyptians on the street, for example, um, to uh, think about fitua, which they immediately understand to be gangster or thug, um, as fitua, the classical um, um, word, then they're like, oh, yeah, it can also be, you know, a good thing. Um, and that fascinated me that 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 rupture that scission um and and yet the you right the the remainder um that exists in the present and so I thought that in the future, I could actually think about this figure in relation to maybe other kinds of figures that represent um you know, these virtues that represent a kind of embodied power, embodied sovereignty, if you will. And then that's where the figure of the Sayyid, the preacher, the, um, the Sufi came into the picture as well. Um, but, um, but, you know, that's the kind of intellectual itinerary. But you know, one could say that um, the Indian Ocean was just waiting to emerge as one major scholar of Indian Ocean world studies suggested to me when I started out that I was going back to my roots, which I took great offense to because, you know, I, though an Indian chose to work on the Middle East um, very self-consciously. And so this idea that, that the Indian Ocean somehow and a Muslim figure would be my roots seemed offensive at the time. But then, of course, you know, as you learn sometimes, older and wiser people do know things you don't know at the beginning. Um, it, it would pan out that being part of a particular Malayali Syrian Christian diaspora um, with its own institutionalized you know, church forms that are transnational that um, that exist in the North American diocesan form as well as in the Gulf and, and in other places that this religious formation which precedes the the Muslim formation in southwestern Malabar, um, that there were affinities in the end between um, between that biography that was mine and the biography that I would go on to to write. Beautiful. So, as someone who was previously located in Middle East studies, and as a historian of the Middle East, can you perhaps share with us what Middle East studies and more broadly area studies can gain from Indian Ocean world studies? I could try. Um, it's a question a lot of people are have been thinking about um, lately. And um, I think, you know, so again, going back to the other question about how does somebody who 
wrote about Egypt come to 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 work on the Indian Ocean. Um, when I arrived at NYU, Timothy Mitchell was leading um, a multi-year um, research program, um, which I think was entitled Concealed Regions. So already in the mid-1990s, there were scholars um, who were trying to push the boundaries of um, area studies, right? So emerging as a as a critique of area studies, and um, I was fascinated by this this this. Um, I thought it was a sort of clumsy. Forgive me, Tim, if you ever listen to this, a clumsy formulation, concealed regions, but it it did offer um, some interesting possibilities um, where, you know, the the region itself, what is it, doesn't necessarily have to be region as we think of it as these geopolitical formations, even if, you know, some people think of them as natural formations or as historically constituted formations. They could be, you know, um, regions of thought, right, that we have, um, that have been suppressed, that we haven't... Um, um, been able to see as legible because of histories of colonialism and so on, right? So this is where um, I think Tim Mitchell was coming from in in devising concealed regions. It wasn't necessarily to suggest that people do trans-regional right, studies, um, like oceanic studies or so on. Um, it was um, a kind of more Foucauldian-inspired um, critique um, whereby um, Certain objects are not even thought to you know, be thought such that you would go about excavating them, right? Um, and so I think that that one of the things that doing trans-regional um, world history, um, choosing the Indian Ocean or the Atlantic world or um, the Mediterranean, as, as, as Brodell tried to teach us to think, um, it does allow us to, to break out um, in the specific context, right, of, um, of American-style area studies, which have very specific um, geopolitical right trajectories um thinking the indian ocean i believe helps us to to make legible the fact that the middle east as we have been studying it in north america um and south asia are products of um a very specific um institutionalizations right of knowledge um and that sometimes the legibility of that becomes possible by by looking at um, these in between spaces, or um, what does Sugata Bose call it, like the trans regional arenas, um, and and I think you know that is what I um, had hoped to do um, with my book was both um, take the Tim Mitchell for Goldian sort of. Um, 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 critique of concealed regions um, that are concealed precisely because of other histories, right, that become um, history, they become um, grand narratives, um, but also um, the the work that people were doing in connecting regions, right, um, especially early modernists, they were quite an inspiration to me um, when 
you know, you can work in a period before, right? Um, um, many of these formations um, come into existence, and so you don't even have to deal with the process of um, of, of clearing a space for excavation, right? Um, and so um, scholars like Sanjay Subramaniam um, uh, are able to develop right um, uh, a rubric of connected histories um, that is very suggestive for later periods, even as those later periods um, completely refashion the, the the very nature of connections, the the degree of connections, the kinds of connections, and so on. Right, um, but. Um, yeah, I think that is all that I would have to say about what these established area studies might be able to gain from um, Indian Ocean world studies. Is that by thinking about trans regions where the trans regions are not just geographical, right, um, um, units, but also um, um, constellations, perhaps, of ideas that um, we once thought were, um, you know, banished from the present, whichever present we're looking at, the late 19th century, mid-20th century, what have you. Um, and the, the trans region helps us to think about or to see, essentially, how that may not have been the case, right? Right. So turning now to the book itself, can you tell us a bit more about how you came to write Forgora Empire? How did the idea develop? What was the research process like? And how was your writing experience? Sure, the fun stuff. Um, yeah, so in terms of, in terms of um, where this idea came from, um, it goes back to, to one of the earlier questions. And um, and. It has to do with the roaming, right? So when I was working on the first book, um, near towards the end, and I had moved from Egyptian archives and libraries to um, to the public record office, as it was called then, in, at Kew Gardens, and I was looking at the British version, I guess, of... Um, of what the Egyptians were up to in the um, first few decades of of the 20th century. And the British version, after having covered, you know, um, the, the Arabic sources, um, quickly became boring to me. <laughs> Police records and, um, uh, you know, spying on Boy Scouts movements and so on. Um, uh, reading these reports, um, which I could also do super fast, right? Much faster than, than I could do with the Arabic sources. Um, and so I found myself one day supremely bored at the archive and got up from my sources that I was looking at that day and wandered about the catalog section, um, the, 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 you know, the extant, the hard copy catalogs. And uh, I pulled up one random one and, um, and I don't know if it magically opened up to, so then the Sufi is calling me. No, I, I doubt it was that, but I don't know how this one opens. And the entry is for the Mopla Outlaw. And 
something about it struck me, right? Um, I didn't know exactly at that moment why Mopla um, resonated for me, um, but it did. And so I pulled up those records and um, they were foreign office, like these huge tomes, um, two actually, huge tomes of correspondence um, about this Mopla outlaw. Turns out it is um, Said Fadl. Um, and the British are um, shooting letters and reports about this one Mopla um, that they have deemed an outlaw um, around the world, right? From um, from London to Aden to to Jeddah to um, to Simla to Delhi to to Madras, um, they are um, you know um, obsessed. It seemed with this figure, um, but at that time, uh, Said Fuddle's rap sheet, as I <laughs> as I like to think about it, um, was incredibly exciting, um, different from reading British police reports about Boy Scouts um, in some ways. And all I could do was write down a note, uh, you know, for future reference that here's a fascinating figure. Um, maybe you could do something with this later. And so once the other book was was done and I found myself in a Canadian research space where uh, you know, your first year on the job, you're instructed to um, apply for um, the various federal and provincial grants that one gets in Canada for research. Um, and so the Canadian system, in a way, uh, uh, urged me to find a new research project very quickly. And I remembered those notes. And based on that, I, I, I wrote up a research proposal that actually succeeded in getting me a provincial and a federal grant, um, the Social Science Humanities Research Council of Canada and the, um, and the Quebec um, New Researchers um, Grant um, that gave me you know, the resources I needed to to track down this um, history of Said Fadl from Istanbul to uh, to Malabar to um, Oman to to the British archives in London, um, which would be a ten year process, right? So the grants came in in um, two thousand seven, maybe two thousand seven, and I started to use the grants in two thousand eight to make. Um, initial trips to Istanbul, to, to Kerala, um, to suss out, you know, what other kinds of, um, sources, uh, do we have to, to, to write, um, whatever. I didn't know at that time that it's, you know, biography would be my in, um, to thinking about this, um, this figure, thinking about, um, the histories that the figure, um, um, was embedded in, um, but yeah, but what are the sources for that in which we find Said Fadl? And it quickly um, presented as you know, um, overwhelming, right? There are 
tons of sources, um, including um, sources in Malayalam. Uh, I would quickly, the British sources have already alerted me to the fact that, right, they were significant as a family in, um, in Northern Kerala, which, you know, the British conquered and turned into the district of Malabar. Um, and so there one finds hagiographies, you find a shrine. Um, and I was reminded that uh, even though I was born in Kerala, I had forgotten Malayalam, um, the language of the state. So I had to, um, you know, I could speak it to some extent and understand it, um, but I had to study it um, as part of the, the research process. Um, and once you know, I acquired sufficient reading knowledge, um, whole new avenues opened up, right, for um, for thinking um, both the historical life of Said Fadl and the ideas of life that the community has, um, the ideas of life that um, the, that he would um, um, you know, he would have to to navigate to negotiate. Um, and suddenly then the British archives, which go far beyond, right, those foreign office series that I initially found, but um, tons of records at, um, at the British Library and the India office records, um, um, <clears throat> that they don't tell us actually um, what this life is. Um, what they tell us is, you know, what a colonial project and then its empire, um, what it makes of this life, right? Um, and this is sort of what many of the, well, the few studies that exist that um, that treat the history of Said Fadl, this is essentially what comes across, right? Um, I think one significant exception would be Anna Bang's um, work where, since she does read um, the the Sufi tracks, um, she can suss out that there is right this other dimension um, to the life that the British inscribe as um, the Mapla outlaw. Um, but um, yeah, so I, you know, eventually found that the colonial archive is both rich um, with possibilities for talking about the um, certain historical contexts in which um, in which we find Fuddle and which Fuddle found himself, um, but they are also tremendously limiting um, in both. Um, a historical understanding of who Said Fadl was and in understanding um, the, the concept of life or the concepts of life that were at play um, in um, this, you know, in these histories that we find. Um, yeah. And so, you know, along with all of the, the archival digging and um, doing a bit of ethnography around the shrine, um, some interviews and so on. Um, there was also the work of um, <laughs> having to um, become a graduate student again, in a sense, right? Like um, figuring out secondary literatures. Um, um, and I say literatures in plural, right? Because as soon as you enter trans-regional spaces, you discover that there are all these these fields and subfields um, that 
um, would be helpful in understanding what's going on. So along with British imperial history, which I hadn't really formally studied, right, to um, Islamic history. Um, when does one stop with Islamic history? <laughs> you know, only with the Ottomans or back to the Abbasid Caliphates. Um, so there's a lot of um, secondary reading, both in history, um, but also in Islamic studies, in um, in anthropology, in um, some philosophy. Um, and, you know, that is part of the reason why the book would go on to take another um, decade plus to actually come out. So, uh, so let's actually turn to the book right now and its chapters. And I believe Samashi here has a question. Okay. Yeah. Um, hi. Thank you. Um, uh, let's begin with your uh, broader theoretical structure. Um, it's different from theories and concepts within the Islamic tradition that scholars would usually draw upon. Uh, so, how do you contribute to the scholarship of South, um, you know, like on South Asian Islam, the Indian Ocean world, and especially of Malabar? If one thinks of the recent work of Bastian Prange. Sure, um, that's a lot there because. Um, well, for one, I would say that, um, you know, it is different from what Islamic study scholars work with um, or how they work, right? But I don't think it's actually um, entirely different from theories and concepts within the Islamic tradition. So, right, part of the the aim of the book is to try and... Um, to try and situate Fuddle in his own worlds. Um, and one of those worlds is certainly the mainstream Sunni um, Islamic tradition, right? Um, and so, so yeah, so in that sense, it, it, there are concepts um, as well as theories in the book that are drawn out um, that you would find in the Islamic tradition, right? But my, of course, approach um, to them is, um, you know, somewhat cursory, somewhat shortened because of my interest in those other worlds as well that um, Said Fadl inhabited and helped to shape. And, and there, um, you know, we see then additional layers of both Islamic um, concepts, but also um, secular concepts of government and so on that emerge. And so I needed um, a framework in which I could try and capture, right, this multiplicity of um, both historical context that Said Fadl inhabited, but also of life worlds that he um, that he moved through, that he thought about, that he constructed. Um, and there I felt that, um, you know, what's available in any one discipline um, is 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 uh, not sufficient, right? To to do that work, um, and then so um, you know, moving right as he does, and with him um, from Malabar, which is where he's born. But then again, um, the book sort of starts with his father, so moving from. Tarim in Hadramaut, Yemen, um, to Malabar in the mid-18th century, um, and then moving again um, as part of a, 
um, a forced movement in a sense um, from Malabar to Arabia um, and then throughout Arabia and then from Arabia to, um, to Egypt and to Istanbul. Um, you have just in terms of space um, that's both geographical, um, but also imperial spaces, um, once Islamic spaces, um, right? If we think in terms of um, how Kian Chowdhury and others um, who have seen the, you know, Fahad Bashara recently and, and many others who, um, who see those geographies um, that make up the Indian Ocean world um, having a very distinctive Islamic character um, during particular periods um, to capture all of that, right? Because that's how I see this historical figure's uh, life, his, 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 his um, career, um, his thought um, is occupying um, a multiple um, spaces that include the geographical ones, as I mentioned, um, but also um, conceptual spaces, um, wherein then space also becomes um, exploded in some ways, right, to become multidimensional as, um, you know, even the British in their sources almost, you know, begrudgingly note that there is a way in which these figures, the Sayyid, um, the two Sayyids, um, Fadl and his father, Sayyid Alawi, occupy multi-dimensions, right? I mean, they um, they depicted it in terms of, of, of <laughs> almost a mental derangement that they enter these states of hell, right? These um, conditions of, um, of ecstasy of, um, I think the British used words like, you know, being beside oneself. Um, how do we capture, right, the significance of that um, beyond a kind of colonial curiosity, but also, um, you know, what I think at least through the 1830s um, was a, a certain begrudging respect, right, that, that this um, ability to command power, to command forces that um, aren't always um, legible, aren't always, um, you know, part of any rational kind of order, um, which would change from the, I think, around the 1830s is what I say in my book, um, where they're less sort of curious and more about um, asserting, um, you know, a more um, universalist, absolutist form of sovereignty. But um, in that kind of hazy period up to around 1830, even the British are acknowledging that um, that these Sayyid figures, right, um, um, are able to um, exercise power in their jurisdictions um, without the use of armies or without the use of, um, right, obvious forms of, of compulsion. Um, and so how do we capture that? Um, and then that's where I thought that, you know, the traditional conceptions of sovereignty have to be mapped, but they can't be um, the full story that I present in the book. And um, and so in addition to sovereignty, how we can think about life forms the, um, the theoretical structure, I think. Um, and here, the Sufi conception of um, the unity of life um, 
which, you know, perhaps was just a convenient translation to try and stay within the, the, the orbit of life, as I think, you know, Said Fadl and his followers are sort of, um, are, are, are compelled to think life um, in, in new ways in the 19th century as, as colonial powers, as state powers lay claim to life. Um, but, you know, it's typically translated Wahdat al-Wujud as the, the unity of existence. Um, but I didn't want, you know, to just, to just, as you say, right, to just um, map an Islamic tradition, a Sufi tradition. I wanted to actually deploy it as um, an analytical category. Um, and so for that, I, I altered the translation um, a little bit to unity of life. Um, so that we might be able to, to capture those things that even the colonial, um, officials in Malabar are, are, are sort of seeing, right? Um, yeah. So in that way, I guess what I have to contribute to, to scholarship on South Asian Islam, the Indian Ocean world, Malabar, um, is a kind of connectivity or the offering of a sort of, um, you know, um, version of what connectivities that aren't just about commerce or, um, right, the um, growth of um, British imperial power, but connectivity that actually moves beyond um, the um, rational realms, right? Connectivity that um, that people experience when they go to the shrine at at Mamburam, for example, right? They're not connecting to um, the Indian state or to the old colonial state or, um, you know, or to some idea of the caliphate, right? They're connecting to other um, powers. And so to make that connectivity um, visible, even as it quickly becomes invisible, because it's, you know, it is the precise um, reason that it's hard to 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 theorize or to study is because it's not really there, right? So, right. Um, anyway, that uh, I hope would be a contribution. Yes. Yeah. Uh, going back to your life forms. So, uh, what you offer us is really a very exciting and experimental way of using, you know, life forms or biography to explore intellectual, political, and community histories across the Indian Ocean. And you encourage us to look beyond the long shadow of the state, especially in laying out your central concept of the Said sovereignty. As a method, then, I was wondering, how do you engage with the indigenous archives of the Sufi and Shari traditions in Malabar? Because there were quite a few genres that were very important to the religious life of Muslims of the region. And the idea of Said sovereignty must have evolved in relationship to that life. So how was that life, you know, I mean, how was the relationship like? Yeah, that's a very good question. A very a tough one, because in many ways, in thinking connectivity beyond the, the traditional um, understandings that we have of the way that we make connections in history, one of the things that um, becomes um, sacrificed perhaps <laughs> at the altar of this other irrational or non-rational um, form of connection is the local, right? Um, and it is, I guess, one of the struggles that anybody who's um, 
trying to chart the biography of someone whose life was transregional in that multiple sense that I, I, I indicated at the beginning. So you're going to be torn between forces of localization and um, forces that, for lack of a better word, might call global um, forces. And in the end, I think the local was significantly compromised or, or um, sacrificed in the in this book. Um, I try to come back to it, right, um, with this idea of returns and um, by trying partly to um, to make Mamburam and the Mamburam Makam visible. Um, but there's, of course, so much more, right, as you rightly note in the question um, of uh, um, what's going on in the development of a, of a Malabari or South Indian Islam um, beyond um, Sayyid sovereignty and that Sayyid sovereignty would naturally have to negotiate um, those other developments such as the, you know, the, the urban um, located ulama, right, for example. Um, who um, were quite often amenable to you know, the change in administration. And um, at least, you know, they become that way. And you know, there are passages in my book that sort of gesture towards um, how this history is going to unfold, right? And that is often what ends up being the focus of most of the the Malabar um, focused scholarship is is this this development, right? Um, that almost always seems to be um, building towards the great um, 1921 Malabar rebellion, um, because then one can start talking about the Khilafat movement and its relationship to Gandhi and to um, the Indian right nationalist movement and so on. Um, and that way, then the nation state reasserts itself. And I perhaps, you know, in some ways strategically leave Malabar, um, to avoid that. Right. Um, and sort of like when I started out, you have, um, some scholars, um, who are located in, in different fields who would try to make sense of what I'm doing in relationship to their field, right? But, but what they're making sense of this um, trans-regional history um, it does is it 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 um, domesticates, right? This figure um, in um, both senses of the word. They actually, um, they, they they tend to sort of pull Said Fadl back to a South Asian space, right? Um, so one of my initial presentations of the work was met with um, the always already Indian question, um, which you might appreciate, <laughs> is, um, you know, what about Bengal? <laughs> and my response to this is, what about Bengal? <laughs> There's nothing about Bengal here. Um, I mean, there is and there isn't, right? Like, so this is perhaps like what's behind this question is that um, there is a history of South Asian Islam and it has its 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 particular trajectories that are often located in the northern um, parts of India, um, and I think maybe that's where the 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 Malabar tradition also right when you start to 
to develop um, the debates locally in Malabar. Again, that 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 process, right, that is implied in development, um, is is crucial. You will start to deal with debates that eventually, you know, and very quickly by the end of the 19th century will have linkages to um, uh, reformist movements, um, not only in northern parts of India, right, but Southeast Asia as well. Um, and But it will be the, the national framework um, that becomes um, in some ways all determining. Um, and there are plenty of scholars who have, you know, done that kind of that kind of work um, locally. My project began with an interview with with M. Gangadharan, who has written a couple of books, um, you know, translated into English as well um, about um, the Maplas, the sort of right the Muslims of this Malabar region, um, and and in you know his work um, K K Muhammad Abdul Sattar. Um, a, a locally based historian um, and um, professor in in northern Kerala, Yasser Arafat, Mahmoud Kuria. Um, there's a way in which you know, the local um, is um, is far better captured, right? In in those works, um, and that's precisely because they think about the debates that emerge um, in Kerala by the end of the 19th century, that will be part of the larger intellectual background for the Malabar Rebellion and how you understand the Malabar Rebellion and so on, um, which is all important, but it's just not work that I did. So answering the question um, is also quite quite difficult. I mean, at one point, the call of Malabar was there, right? Um, especially as as I began to see what the richness, you know, what richness there was in the debates that that develop around shrine practices, right? As you have um, the the great, you know, second round, if you will, of migrations to the Gulf of labor migrations and the returns to Kerala, where Kerala is raised on the exports, perhaps the most uh, percentage-wise of laborers from India to the Gulf. Um, you have you know, new forms of Islam returning, and you know, in Mamburam itself, across from um, from the Maqam, um, will be built um, a grandiose um, sort of congregational mosque um, that shows right the the power of that migration, the wealth that comes back um, with um, the migrants. And also the ideas, um, and so the there was a desire to to map out um, the debates more carefully um, and bring them you know, into the present because the sources are there and it's incredibly fascinating. Where you have, for example, um, um, TV programs that um, offer a stage essentially. Um, for Muslims in Malabar of differing um, opinions, um, Sufi, Sunni um, debates around um, questions, right, of theology, uh, or about the the you know questions of of of, of orthodoxy, of visiting, of whether or not visiting um, Sayyid Alawi's shrine is um, um, is shirk. Or not right is is yeah. a form of sort of polytheistic practice, um, but I I 
ultimately could not do all of that, right? Um, right. Especially as I follow Said Fadl as he leaves Malabar, as he's exiled from there in 1852. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, we can only do so much in a book, right? Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, this actually brings me to the first chapter uh, where you discuss the encounter of the English East India Company with the Saeeds of the Alawi Sufi order in the early 19th century. I was thinking, and it might just go back to, you know, what we have been discussing so far, is that in what ways do you depart and differ from the earlier accounts from, say, the 1980s, especially of Kane Pankas, that also recognized the alternative authority that the Saeeds had long exercised in the region. Yeah, um, I think, you know, Panikers Against Lord and State was one of the first books I read when I was preparing the PhD application. So back in 1995, um, before this, you know, this book project actually um, took shape. And um, I guess that the departure is in the fact um, that I find in those histories uh, a teleology that I um, you know, couldn't actually follow in um, charting this life of Saifatl because he doesn't ever get to return to India. Um, the British made sure of that, right? That he nor his descendants would be able to return to India. Um, so in that way, um, the biography is very useful for disrupting um, the teleological narrations that um, we typically find in, um, um, I don't want to say all of the studies, but in many, most of the studies um, that treat religious um, formations. Um, and you also find a very secularist kind of um, bent in, in those studies where they might acknowledge the significance of, of um, these Sayyids and ulama and um, you know, how they're important to these communities. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's also this sense that you know, um, reform is is inevitable. Reform is going to come, um, and a certain rationalization of that religious order um, it will happen. And there, yeah, you know, that's important when one is thinking anti-colonialism in a particular kind of register. Um, but it doesn't map on to the life that I was. Um, mapping right so um so i think that's that's where the departure uh, yeah um uh, in the second chapter uh you talk about the most interesting and late document from the pre-1857 period um if you could tell us more about it how does it bring together themes of religion and sovereignty exploring the book and the virtues it offers about a good government Islam, and also what implications it has for the Indian world. Sure. Um, and this, uh, actually, this this text, the um, preparedness of princes, um, tells us a lot about the teleological that I was, um, that I was referencing earlier. Um, so, it's a text um, whose full title is The Preparedness of Princes and Governors for the Affronts of Infidels and Idolaters. Um, 
And it's a text that actually is produced um, outside India um, and will end up um, being smuggled back into India. So, so the story is that um, in the 1830s, when there were a series of uprisings against um, um, landlords and against the British, um, you know, which were seen as Islamic uprisings, Muslim uprisings, um, you hear of the circulation of, of Sayyid Alawi's fatwas, um, his religious opinion um, that's offered to, um, to people seeking guidance, people asking questions about, you know, how do we endure this calamity of um, colonial occupation? Um, what is right? What is just in this situation? And so you have a series of fatwas that appear and um, the colonial officials you know, will acknowledge that they exist and that they circulate in the region. Um, and they come to be grouped under, within, you know, under the title of, of, um, of a al-Batar, um, the sharpest sword. And the fatwas are, you know, typically regarded as jihadi fatwas, right? They're, um, they're calls to the lesser jihad, to an armed um, resistance, to an armed struggle against um, those who would undermine um, Muslim life, Muslim sovereignty. Um, but what happens is that the British essentially confiscate um, the extant copies and um, they were apparently out of circulation by 1851 or so. Um, and in 1852, Said Fadl is, is exiled, expelled from, from India. Um, and he has the fatwas incorporated into this, this larger text, the preparedness of princes. Um, and when you read that text together, the fatwas, as well as the advice for princes, which goes back to an old genre, right? The mirror of princes literature, um, but has its own distinctive markers of, um, or Alawi markers um, that make it a Sufi text as well, right? So it's not, um, it's not exactly the same as, as, as what would, one would find in the medieval genre. Um, and so you have the lesser jihad, it is incorporated into this text, but when you read the rest of the fatwas, which often people don't <laughs> read, and um, you know, that are not about armed struggle, about um, killing infidels, resisting, right, their encroachment and so on, um, which are actually about how to live with the other, right? Um, because the fatwas are a whole variety. They're not. And so there you have questions of authorship, like, you know, where were these fatwas produced? I think, um, you know, were they produced in Yemen? Or they produ and I think it's a compilation, right? And which is exactly the word that's used um, in the text, right? It doesn't talk about who wrote it as much as um, the, that it's a compilation of fatwas that have emerged over time and in different kinds of contexts. Some contexts, like in Malabar, it's where you have Muslims who are in a minority, right? Um, how do you live in that kind of context? Um, you know, how you can't live seeing everybody as an enemy, right? Um, especially when you are not the, um, 
you know, you are not the state or you don't control the state and so on. Um, so this larger text read with these other fatwas point us to um, exactly a relationship of religion and sovereignty, as you as you suggest in your in your in your in your question that tells us something about good government in islam where um it's not about the princes and the governors in the end right they're important like for muslims to live well in islamic societies where you know, the princes the sultans and so on are muslim um it would be good to have them be good governors and being good governors and ministers and and sultans um, requires X, Y, and Z. So they, these you know these are detailed and they are repetitions of what you will find in in other Islamic texts. But um, but what's interesting is that the it the Alawi tradition when it creeps into the text, right? Um, a text which actually has prayers to the Ottoman Sultan, right? So it's printed in Cairo in eight. 1857 or 58 um, and then it, it you know then it makes its way back to to Malabar and we're not exactly sure how um, my own you know my own um, acquisition of this text goes you know <laughs> was a circuitous route to a private um, holding um, of a man who copied um, the copy that was kept in a mosque um, in a remote sort of part of Malabar um, is how I got a hold of of the text myself. Um, but you see that there's a critique of government that is there to repress people, to control people, and simply that, right? and not to help elevate people. So government, as Foucault sort of traces out, right, that conducts souls to, um, to, to God in this case, right? Um, and in that way, I think um, the text is a very important one for that, that, that period, but also for thinking more broadly about Islamic conceptions of, of, of government or governmentality, discipline, um, um, politics. Um, so it has implications for um, you know, other parts of the Indian Ocean world, I think, um, because you have Alawis who will spread around the, um, the Indian Ocean world and their engagements with um, a textual corpus that Eng Seng Ho so beautifully um, narrates in, in uh, his book, The Graves of Tarim. Um, you know, alerts us to the fact, right, that there is um, there is a wide circulation of particular um, um, of a canon of sorts, and it is a different sort of canon. And the Indian Ocean world, I think, is very important in constituting that canon. Very, very exciting. Um, yeah, I mean, I was I was fascinated by how authorship works in this fatwas because Malabar had a long tradition of seeking legal opinions from Shafi authorities abroad. So it makes total sense that these fatwas were probably more of a compilation than having, you know, originated from just one author. Um, the chapter three moves very briskly around the Indian Ocean, and it's a great read. Um, you refer to two very significant events in the Arab world, 
the rebellion of 1855 and the 1858, in which Fadal was involved in all likelihood. So what had actually happened and what was the alleged role that Fadal played in these, which had, you know, subsequent consequences? Uh, yeah, so this, the answer, the quick answer, I realize my answers have been going on. The quick answer for to that, right, is that if I had delved into the events themselves of 1855 and 58, um, it would be like you know, delving into the Malabari local debates um, it would take me away from the larger narrative of, of life that I was trying to map. But very quickly, um, in 1855, there's a rebellion among Arabs of Mecca. Um, against Ottoman, the Ottoman attempts to suppress the slave trade. Um, and you know, this one could chalk up to a series of rebellions that um, were ongoing since the late 18th century. Um, in, you know, rebellions that, um, in a sense, index um, how the Sultan Caliph um, in Istanbul um, is not um, his authority is not being um, regarded anymore as um, the same as that of a caliph, right? Sure, there's a sultan in Istanbul, but um, but you know the the caliphal qualities are not so great, which is why the um, Islamic world is in danger, right? Um, and by 1855, it, the, the danger is clear and present, right? The Europeans are essentially able to impose terms um, to tell the Ottomans that X, Y, and Z reforms must take place. And in this case, the reforms um, to suppress the slave trade, which the Ottomans will try to, to actually um, to do, right? So in 1855, there's a rebellion. It's not clear if Fuddle was involved, but the British um, are keeping tabs on him and are <laughs> suggesting that he might have been. And then the 1858 um, incident was a massacre in Jeddah, um, where um, where Europeans and um, their Christian protégés um, were killed. Um, and that story is, you know, um, that that history is told in interesting ways um, by other scholars like Oxenwald. Um, and the recent books that just came out this year, um, I think probably um, would have to treat those events. The book by Michael Christopher Lowe um, on the Hijaz and Ulrike Freitag on, on Jeddah um, as connected spaces, right, that have these overlapping um, trans-regional um, um, relationships that involve the Ottoman Empire, that involves... Um, the British that involves um, Islamic reform movements and so on. Um, so I don't delve into those events myself, but um, what I use them for is to show how the British surveillance um, of Said Fadl is weak, actually, in the 1850s after they expel him from India, but would exponentially grow once we move into the 1870s. Um, and so for me, those events and, the, and then later ones, when they're able to better track him, are actually um, aimed at sort of showing how 
state sovereignty, modern state sovereignty is in large part predicated on better surveillance, right? Better the capacity for surveillance and policing. Right. Indeed. Yeah. Um, You know, like in the rest of the chapter, you then offer a very close reading of an Ottoman document, which Fadl wrote after 1879, after he was So what says political philosophy does it offer that is different from what Fadl was writing earlier in the Uddat about forms of good governance? Yeah, um, that's an excellent question, because this is the moment when um, we can see very clearly that he has undergone um, a series of of intellectual shifts, right? Um, you have the son of um, a revered um, saintly figure um, who will leave India with that patrimony, with that heritage. Um, and with the knowledge that his father, you know, that his burial site has become a shrine. Um, and so continuing an Aliwi tradition in the Indian Ocean world, um, where um, important figures of the tradition, um, they will be shown this reverence and this respect and their, um, and their burial sites become maqams or shrines. Um, and so Odda Talamara navigates, you know, this um, tradition, the importance of the government of souls, um, where the, the main end um, is not a worldly end, right? Is not, so it doesn't have um, a politics. So life is not about politics. Um, but as we move through these periods in the 1850s, 1860s, where he witnesses himself the declining power of the Ottoman state, which isn't just any state, right? It's sort of the last, one of the last remaining sovereign Muslim states, whose sultan also um, has a claim to the caliphate, right, of being a sultan caliph. Um, And to to witness the weakening of the state um, draws him into um, politics, into thinking life in political terms. And that is a major shift in how he um, thinks his own Sufi tradition and thinks Islamic concepts um, because geopolitics suddenly start to um, and become more detailed in um, um, in these reports, which are not you know any longer Sufi treatises or or, or chronicles or what have you or you know, biographies. Or, um, and they're very literally reports that you would find a government agent of the Ottoman Empire um, writing, and and he will through these reports, I imagine, acquire ministerial status, um, and so in them you get. You know, accounts of the land and it's like um, productive um, potential, the commercial possibilities. Uh, you get accounts of um, of Arabs, which actually harken back to earlier um, um, historical traditions within um, within Islam of 
of thinking Arab meaning very specifically a nomadic tribal, the Badu groups, right? Um, and and they're they're very clearly presented as um, as his other, right? And the other clearly of um, of settled city folks um, and um, their sort of savage, literally savage, right? Which is the the word that appears. Um, form of life um, requires, needs, necessitates the guidance of a Sayyid, um, the existence of a, um, of a strong Muslim state. Um, and so these terms of governmentality that, um, that emerge are startling, right, <laughs> to, to read um, after you pass through um, the the Oditlomara, and then as you pass beyond the government reports to the latter stage of his life, to the Sufi treatises, um, where um, this experiment with government, which fails, right, in Zofar, mm-hmm. where he's kicked out, um, expelled, you know, partly because of an El Nino event um, that causes massive drought and famine, um, that he's you know, probably mismanaged, um, but uh, also because of of, of um, British and Omani um, maneuvering to um, to secure Omani sovereignty over Zofar. Um, but that, coupled with essentially home um, um, house arrest in Istanbul, where you know when that becomes clear to him by the end of the eighteen eighties that the Sultan has no intention of letting him um, roam free and mm. potentially create diplomatic incidents between the Ottomans and the British. Mm. Um, he turns to the Sufi um, tradition that he's an heir to um, and problematizes, I would argue, if we were to radically recontextualize those Sufi texts, then text, they become um, a problematization of what he himself had participated in just um, um, uh, a few years earlier um, of trying to conceive sovereignty um, through the biopoliticization of life. Right. Very rich indeed. Um, Speaking of Sufi traditions, I think Kelvin has more questions on that. Okay. Yeah, I I think that your work is really meaningful and significant also in a way it treats the Sufi mystical treatises methodologically. And I think that historians in general stand to benefit from really your approach in reading uh, this set of texts as political treatises and as embedding within themselves a set of politics, a set of ethics. Um, Just to zoom out a little bit, I have a more broader question about how the genre of Sufi mystical treatises has been read by scholars of religion or anthropologists, and in what ways are they valuable to the historian um, in your case? So what is the ethical and political subject that is often assumed by scholars um, who are operating within a secular framework? And in what ways do these Sufi mystical treatises undermine that vision of the coherent autonomous subject? Sure. Um, Very good questions. Um, I can't elaborate, obviously, all the different ways they may be read in other disciplines. Um, but my feeling is that they're certainly given more weight in religious studies and anthropology um, than in history. Um, and even in sort of 
um, theoretical studies of of law. Um, for example, um, in Samara Esmer's brilliant um, history of modern law in Egypt, um, um, where as a counterpoint to this um, kind of legal colonization of the concept of the human, um, she offers a reading of an Egyptian Sufi, um, uh, I think Atar, in the early 20th century. Um, and there's a lot of resonances there um, with um, Said Fadl, but also departures um, as a um, Sufi belonging to a, um, a, a Sayyid tradition, right, who claims descent from the Prophet, um, there is a kind of um, um, privilege given to the Ahl al-Bayt, to the Prophet's household and his, um, you know, his closest companions and so on, to the Salaf. Um, that is is somewhat different, but uh, also in that he dies, Fadl dies in 1900, and Atar goes on to read Darwin and so on. Right? So there are, are 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 differences. Yet I think if we read them together, if we read lots of these different um, Sufis together, um, and we read them in ways that literary critics sort of teach us to read. Um, you know, texts that repeat in new contexts, that, that repetition is different from a reproduction of the same, right? That, um, then we might sort of actually um, arrive at um, um, meaningful conclusions about particular historical moments. Um, and we might find that, right, um, that repetition and the difference um, in interesting sorts of locations, right? It could just be in the manner in which the text was disseminated, could be in marginal notes, right? So in some of, in some of Said Fadl's last texts, you see marginal notes that attempt to intervene in the Sufi tradition. So in this case, it's the state that intervenes or the publisher um, that tries to to sort of rein in the mystical flights um, by reference to the Ottomans. Um, or you can find them in the reframings that take place, right? So the way in which Said Fadl reframes um, the fatwas or the mirror of princes genre um, in Odit Lomara. Um, it could be in prefaces that are, um, that are offered by um, a printing house um, or um, you know, the biography of the particular interlocutor in this case, right? Um, Fuddle's um, movement through time as a historical, um, as a historical figure who simultaneously engages a, um, what is a trans-historical, but also an anti-historical um, tradition, right? Um, that when we then arrive at this textual production, or repetition, if you will, um, at the end of the 19th century. It's not just um, plagiarism. <laughs> There's a lot of copying of previous scholars and so on. And people have studied you know, how we should think about um, that form of repetition um, in Islamic studies in particular. Um, but I think that for historians, particularly modern historians, um, these are some of the ways that 
um, we might find um, these Sufi texts helpful for our projects if it's, you know, projects to think about um, empire or to think about sovereignty, um, wherein we don't end up reproducing those terms of sovereignty. Um, or we might actually problematize them, if not displace them, right? Um, that, that is a really interesting provocation that I think leads us nicely to your next chapter, Uncertain Returns. So here I want to invite you to tell us a bit more about Mampuram. How and why was it historically significant? And how did this significance shift over time? And I'm thinking especially of the implications of colonial and post-colonial Mapala attempts to bring back the Alawi family along with their own efforts to return. How does this impact how we think about archives, including cyber archives, di digital archives, and non-traditional archives? Yes. Um, <clears throat> the kind of rogue chapter in the book. Um, um, so good questions. I, uh, I guess the first about the historical significance um, of Mamburam and the shifts over time, I, I sort of alluded to that um, previously. Um, and in the book, I, I sort of suggest you know, that it is Said Alawi and um, the legacy of Said Fadl that, that makes Mamburam, right? Um, otherwise, it's a sleepy hamlet in the middle of you know, <laughs> a nowhere in the middle of nowhere kind of um, location, but yet it's incredibly um, globally connected, right? Um, and um, it was so in the time of, um, of Said Alawi and Said Fadl, um, wherein you have um, displacements that are experienced throughout um, South Asia, throughout um, other regions of the world in, in the latter parts of the, the 18th century that lead to various kinds of movements in those places, right? Whether it's constitutionalisms in um, the Western Hemisphere or um, various forms of Islamic um, revolt in, um, um, in Africa and in, um, in, in Asia, um, Mamburam is not, despite its sleepiness, despite its, its, its somewhat um, remoteness from the port cities and so on, it's not disconnected, right? And part of this is made very clear in the, the British um, reports about um, the, um, um, what is it called? The, uh, the, um, the point from which rebellion emanates, right? Um, and they identified it as Mamburam, um, as the place where you find the Sayyids. Um, and the reason is because, you know, though they could never prove that Sayyid Alawi and Sayyid Fadl actively incited or engaged, because if they could, then they would have more easily been able to arrest them. Um, but what they did have were circumstantial evidence of people traveling from different parts um, of Kerala to seek the blessings of these Sayyids in this, like, removed hamlet in Mamburam. Um, and they were seeking blessings in order to um, carry out attacks on um, the British, right? Um, and the way that the British would respond to this after they exile, exiled the Sayyid um, is to lock it down, 
right? So again, acknowledging the importance of this space um, is to lock down the shrine so that it sort of disappears from um, from memory, from people's um, everyday practices or or or, or their um, pilgrimages or their you know occasional practices. Um, but it doesn't go away, and eventually the shrine is reopened. Um, when things seem more stable by the end of the 19th century, um, and the shrine will, you know, be rebuilt, and um, and you see a kind of um, return to significance of the shrine in the um, in the later 20th century. So as I started my fieldwork there. Um, it still had a relatively sleepy area, but you could see that there was a relatively new Quran school. Um, next to the shrine, um, and then the next time I went, there was the um, the iron and you know the rebarb coming out of the ground um, for a massive overpass that was going to be as disastrous overpasses I could tell. Like it was going to just drop people down uh, with their cars literally next to the shrine. Um, that didn't seem like a very clever idea, but um, the shrine complex was growing into a, a complex right with um a set shopping or a, a sort of area with stalls for um you know selling ritualistic kinds of items hagiographies um you know textbooks for preparing for your um for your college entrance exams various kinds of um book stalls as well um, so it actually has seen a, a revival um, in, in both the built environment um, and the um, the numbers of pilgrims who, or the you know, people who make ziyara to the to to the shrine. Um, and in turn, of course, um, it becomes wrapped up again in um, in in globally salient um, developments such as um, you know a Salafi movement that is not the way that Said Fadl had understood the Salaf, um, a, a, a different understanding of, um, of what um, the, the early Muslims um, meant for Islam to be. They actually find themselves at, at loggerheads. Um, and um, so in that way, Mamburam remains um, um, significant to, um, to the, the, the debates that are ongoing, both in Malabar and the rest of India, um, and um, in in many other places around the world, about the the true nature of Islam, um, the the relationship of religion to politics, to um, to intermediaries, whether there can be intermediaries between man and God, and so on. Right. So, so this little place that doesn't seem um, under you know in, in re- using certain criteria to be significant in any way um, has significance. Beautiful. So before we move on to our last traditional quest- question, can you please read a paragraph from the book for our listeners? Oh, sure. Um, I suppose maybe closing this out with the closing of the book um, would be the best um, thing to read. Um, okay, so. Finally, in order to release our story from the grip of sovereignty's mediations, we look to four 
the unity of life. A leap of faith was necessary for me and for those who sought similar glimpses, an experience of solidarity, if that is what it is, that is impossible to represent. Traces of that leap are what we have tracked through histories of diasporic movement, colonization, identity formation, mystical flights, rebellion, reforms, reaction, and returns. Thus, through a long multidimensional play of sovereignty and life, an obscure site in Zofar, shrouded in centuries-old Indian Ocean myth and legend, was tied to another obscure site in Malabar, vested with stories of Mapla Muslim community formation that was in turn tied to a grave in an imperial cemetery in Istanbul, and as my final act of tracing this relationship within a global Indian Ocean history has revealed, the play continues. Beautiful. Well, Wilson, we've taken up a lot of your time. So moving on to our last traditional question, what are you working on now? Can you tell us a bit about your current and future projects? Oh, thank you. Well, I think I have gone on far longer than I should have. Um, so I'll be very brief. I spent the summer working on an article that um, that was just submitted on Fuddle's anti-colonialism and um, Sufi thought or Sufi revival um, and how we might use that to um, think about critical theory for expanding the horizons of critical theory. Um, and um, other than that, which was exhausting to do, um, I haven't given much thought to, to what, are, what should come next. Um, I think after the Indian Ocean rounds that I've made, I'm, I'm probably ready to return to the Arab world, um, especially to its non-capital sites um, after many years um, in Cairo and having lived in Damascus. Um, I fell in love with this little place called Salala in Oman, um, but also um, with the Fayum Oasis in Egypt. So if someone can point me to a way to locate those two in a historical frame, I'll be, I'll be set. Um, or maybe they can be books three and four. Um, but yes, there is no firm plan for the future. at the moment. All right. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode in which we explored Bogoto Empire by Professor Wilson Jacob, published by Stanford University Press in 2019. You can find a book on Amazon and other outlets. We are your hosts, Kelvin Ng and Somishi Ghosh. Stay tuned for the next episode of New Books in the Indian Ocean World.